So there's an exciting new way for you to connect with Katie and me. Uh, check out Yappa, the official comment host of the Useful Idiots presidential debate series. With Yappa, you can share an audio or video comment or yap and talk face-to-face -face with the entire Useful Idiots crew. Leave us a yap and you just might hear yourself live on air. Welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm your host, Katie Halper. And I'm Matt Taibbi. I guess the other host, right? And the other host, yeah. Another right. host. Right, another host. Because right. yes. who knows who we're going to bring on next. So this could be our, our last show of the Trump era. Oh my God. Right? Or this could be funny video come next week. We're going to enter the, the new disco era. That's my belief. The Biden zone. The Biden Bidenocracy. Yeah, but but the Biden years are going to be like the late seventies. That's my that's that that's my prediction. Kind of embarrassing, but kind of like full of people enjoying themselves because they were just so stressed out for the all the years previously. And nostalgia for the nineteen fifties. Well, was no, there wasn't Isn't so much that of that. Happy days? I guess that's true. A little bit of the happy days. And but, Greece. And Greece, yeah, it's pretty campy though. Yeah, it was. Like yeah. the the full blown like let's go back to the fifties didn't happen till the eighties. Right. Anyway, uh, we'll see what happens, but um, you know, if if this is really it, has it been fun? Not really. What the Trump years? Have the Trump yeah. years been fun? I mean, no, they've been terrible. But they've provide. He has provided some unintentional comedic relief. I mean, we're gonna yeah, we'll we'll look back at it and say that was that was interesting. Right. Yeah. Uh, okay, so we got a lot of stuff to get to. We got uh, great guests. Yeah. Uh, it's our first three time guests, right? Crystal is, yeah. We had Crystal on, and then Crystal and Sagar, and now it's Crystal and Sagar again. So yeah. But yeah, they got a lot to lot to talk about, and uh, we have a lot to talk about. So let's let's get right to it. Four yeah. groups. Uh, what, what do we got for Democrats? Suck. In case viewers and listeners don't know, uh, Amy Coney Barrett or Amy Conehead Barrett or Amy Harry Colon, Harry Conehead. Sorry about that. Or Harry Colon uh, was confirmed. Not at all surprising. Um, and I just wanted to show you uh, Chuck Schumer's comments on it. We're talking about the lives and freedoms of the American people. The right to affordable health care, to make their own private medical decisions, to join a union, vote without impediments, marry who they love. And Judge Amy Coney Barrett will play a part in deciding whether those rights will be sustained or curtailed for the next generation of Americans. So I want to be very clear with the American people about what's going on here. The Republican Senate majority, America, is breaking faith with you, doing the exact opposite of what it promised just four years ago to cement a majority on the Supreme Court that threatens your fundamental rights. Don't forget it, America. Don't forget what's happening here, because it's a travesty, a travesty, a travesty for the Senate, a travesty for the country, and it will be an inerasable stain on this Republican majority forevermore. I yield the floor. Of course, I don't know if you remember this, Matt, but uh, Pelosi uh, told George Stephanopoulos that we have, you know, we're, we have a lot of options that she wasn't going to get into now. She kind of got like 007 about it. Um, mm -hmm. She said we were going to use all the uh, arrows in our quiver. What can you do then? Some have mentioned the possibility if they try to push through a nominee in a lame duck session that, that you and this, the House could move to impeach President, President Trump or Attorney General Barr as a way of stalling and preventing the Senate from acting on this nomination. 
Well, we have our options. We have arrows in our quiver that I'm not about to discuss right now. And it uh, turns out that they didn't do that um, because she has been confirmed. Uh, but of course, the, the Dems, you know, as, as is pr- predicted, they uh, fundraised off of this but did not deliver, which just goes to, I think, something that we constantly talk about in the show, which is, uh, you know, how they are, how performative they are. So, you know, this is, I'm just reading an email that Pelosi had sent out. I'm furious beyond belief. I'm watching Republicans rush through Trump's Supreme Court nominee in order to crush the Affordable Care Act. Now I'm going to make Republicans hypocritical scheme completely backfire. It's all caps and in red. Kind of Trumpy. I'm now personally three times matching gifts to flip the Senate and stop this confirmation, but only for the next 24 hours. I'm calling for a massive uprising. 4,946 gifts in the next 24 hours to make Republicans rue the day they tried to steal the Supreme Court from us. I know I've asked so much of you, but this is quite possibly my most urgent ask. Will you rush $10 before midnight? This is so important to me. I will personally three times match your generous gift. Then we have um, Neera Tandon saying that she's putting on her war paint. I don't know if you were privy to that, uh, if you were privileged to that tweet. Didn't um, see it. Oh, well, you know, she she said she was putting on her war paint. Neera Tandon, let me see your war face. I can't yeah. That's going to be great. Yeah, you know, this was, again, a promise of all this resistance that was going to go into it, right? And somehow it managed to disappear. I'm not sure what happened. Uh, it certainly did not show up, though, in the real world. A lot of ruin going on. A lot of ruin, war prep, quivers and arrows, bows and arrows. Um, and then somehow, I don't know what happened. Okay. Well, to be fair, I don't think there was a whole lot they could have done. Well, couldn't they not have shown up? I mean, there was a corona thing. They could have just not shown up. Not. Yeah, they not could have stalled, but I think it, it still would have passed in the lane. You know, I mean, it, it, eventually it would have happened. But, but how did the and so the Republicans were able to stall on their part just because they had the numbers and and the Dems didn't. I think that's what happened, yeah. But I also, I mean, I also don't think the Democrats really have a, an interest in. My guess is, if you just looked at the poll numbers, Amy Coney Barrett's numbers were up. Uh, also, with, even even among Democrats, they were saying things like, you know, her favorability numbers were up. So this could have been. Why? Why were they up? It, it was. It wasn't that. They, it wasn't that they were uh, in favor of her confirmation. It was just that they weren't. People didn't dislike her personally as much as they. Right. Yeah. So if they had made a massive stink and 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 delayed it, potentially the, what their calculation might be is that that might have impacted turnout for the general election. And I mean, I'm just playing devil's advocate. Sure. More literal, likely, literal devil's advocate. More likely, they just would rather do nothing and fundraise off of it. By the way, I just want to give a quick shout out to Marco Rubio for being so woke. Uh, this is what he had to say about um, Amy Conan Barrett. Uh, Last night, a working mother of seven was confirmed by the Senate and then sworn in as an associate justice of the Supreme Court by an African-American associate justice. What a country. Uh, all right. Well, that's that was good. So they did suck this week. So uh, Republicans suck. Um, I just think we just got to watch this clip of Jared Kushner because it's it's 
it's such a beautiful demonstration of of <laughs> why Republicans don't get black votes. Let's right. here's here's even exhibit though, A. Even though Trump has the best relationship with blacks right. since Abraham Lincoln, right. no one's done as much for for black people since Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. One thing we've seen in a lot of the the the, the black community, which is mostly Democrat, is that uh, President Trump's policies are the policies that can help people break out of the problems that they're complaining about. But he can't want them to be successful more than they want to be successful. And what you're seeing throughout the country now is a groundswell of support in the black community. A couple of things. Yeah. First of all, I, I, I guess I just don't notice this enough, but the Patrick Bateman factor on on Jared Kushner's face from, from American Psycho, uh, like the mask-like quality of it. I know, I spent, I, I spent 30 minutes every morning with the exfoliating mask. Right, and, right. You know, it, it, it does look like not quite a real face. Oh, looks, no, he looks like he's made of, of wax. Right, yeah. He looks what? like a wax museum's rendition of him. Right, yeah, yeah. He's 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 already in Madame Tussauds museum. Although he, it's more of a porcelain effect than wax to maybe, me. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, maybe. You know, it's kind of like yeah. the theatrical. Oh yeah. Of, like right? you mean like he's literally wearing the like the um Yeah, the theat like the comedy tragedy yeah, whatever. Exactly. Yeah, right. or, or a little bit of the Guy Fox thing, but but anyway, he so he he's He's sitting there and he's wearing his, you know, ten million dollar tailored suit, talking about how you, you gotta want it enough in order to in order to improve your material circumstances. Right. This is the guy who married into money, uh, money that wasn't was itself inherited, right, right. From, from a person who surely, surely would have ended up in some dire circumstances if he had actually had to fight and claws way out of the ghetto. Right. And uh, also right? was had like racist policies as a landlord, as did his father. So, I mean, maybe that was his tough love. You know how it's like, you got to fight twice as hard. You've got to be twice as good. They were just right. trying to prep black people, you know, because they wanted them to overcome. Right. Yeah, exactly. It was tough yeah. love, yeah. They were trying, they were trying to bring, bring it along that way. But it it's still continually amazing to me that the Republicans have not come up with an electoral strategy for how to attract minority votes. Now they they right. they do it and they have done it fairly successfully with Hispanic voters. Right. I mean George George Bush did incredibly well. I think one year I think he got over 40% Hispanic votes and Trump is actually improving in that area. There are reasons for that. And and look, there are, there are other minority groups especially immigrants to this country who have um, who are probably more conservative uh, than people born in this country on a host of issues, but the the, the with when it comes to black voters, Republicans just have this thing, and clearly racism is is part of it. But it's also this just deep built-in cluelessness right. that they just can't seem to shake. I mean, just going back to the who was it on the Nixon tapes who said that. All black people want is is, uh, is uh, a warm place to shit. Basically, that that wow. was the tape. Yeah, it was. Uh, well, that's only that, half though? the quote. The other half, I I can't even say on this wow. show. Who was that? I don't know who that was. It wasn't Nixon. It might have been Nixon himself. I can't remember. I will have to go. We'll have to go it back and look that one up. Kissing, it's not Kissinger, but that would have been funny to hear from Kissinger. All black yeah. people, all black people want is a warm place to shit. It's it, yeah. The, the whole quote is pretty bad. Let's put it that way. Um, well, it speaks to Trump's one of Trump's challenges, which is like he was able to run as an outsider, right, uh, the first time, but now he's been president for four years. Well, right, and also it's just it's 
it's the standard issue Mitt Romney, you know, time to end your dependency on right. free stuff kind right. of a thing, which is absurd. Whenever they actually get in front of black voters, they start they start with the assumption that what black voters want is a handout from government. Right. And yeah. and and they're 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 because of that, they automatically disqualify themselves as as an appealing choice because they're 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 operating from a racist assumption to begin with, uh, and these are votes they actually could have. That's that's the thing that that's kind of that's kind of amazing to me. I guess what I'm saying is that they're the mistake that I think both Republicans and Democrats make is is to think that the black vote is monolithic, and right. that there are litmus test votes, and that all you have to do is hit those, and you're going to be fine. Whereas actually. Uh, the you know it's it's not monolithic it's a it's obviously it's a very complicated population and there are different appeals that that could be made that would be successful at different age groups Um, but the republicans basically give away all of those arguments they they don't even they, they don't they 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 take away their ability to even try to get even a portion of that vote because their 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 first assumption is 100 percent off-putting right. <laughs> you know what i'm right, saying yeah. it's off-putting to 100 percent of black voters like you want something for free and that and until you until you get past that we, we can't help you like you're not going to win any votes that way i'm sorry i mean yeah i think the important point here is that we've learned what we've learned is that jared kushner should not be uh doing black voter outreach and yeah that's that, great right. yes why did i even bother talking about anything i, I, I could have stopped with that no yeah. but and also perhaps i want to bring up the other interesting uh, thesis, which is that he, perhaps he uses a lot of Ahava products, which is an Israeli um, beauty line. Is it? Uh, which would make sense because he's, you know, he's a big fan of Israel and um, they have a lot of Dead Sea mineral skincare products. So maybe that's how he gets his, you know, and I'm not, that's not an anti-Semitic joke. That's an Israel-based reference. Gotcha. All right. Well, if we ever, if I ever want to go for that look, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll try that. Yeah. It's kind and of, of course, masky. Yeah, it's masky. He really looks like, I feel like he looks like he's going to melt. You see it more as porcelain. It would be interesting to put him in heat. I would predict he'd melt. You predict he would break. Yeah, yeah. I, I see him more of a cracking thing. The Although cracking, I do yeah. see, a, it's a little bit of like Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, the last scene, you know, where the eyeballs fall out. Yes. All right. What do we have for, um, isn't that uh, terrible? This story makes me so much more pro-necrophilia than I even <laughs> thought I could get. All right. This story is extremely this is, this disturbing. Is gonna, we're going to test to see how much our audience is tired of this of this theme. I mean, I get a lot of positive feedback, by the way, because we're, there's not a lot of places to go when you're looking for the brave moral arguments that, again, no, no ulterior motives. I mean, you believe me when I say that, right? In all seriousness, like you don't actually, like you, you know I'm grossed out by it. Sure. <laughs> I don't want a dinner. I don't even want a dinner. Look, maybe I'm a hypocrite because I'm trying to destigmatize. So I'm, trying, I'm not trying to destigmatize them. I just think it's a, maybe there's some harm reduction. So here's a classic case of how it could be harm reduction. This is a disgusting, disgusting case that took place, um, I think, in England, uh, where they're, they're so like closeted weird in that country. But a man um, has been jailed for having sex with chickens. Mm-hmm. Um, also a dog, um, also having like child porn on his computer. Uncool. He saved the videos of the chicken sex under family videos. Okay, so like the wife was, was the in file. on it, right? If I remember yes. correctly. Yes. Oh, right. The wife filmed it and occasionally appeared in it. 
she they i think she has had her sentence suspended because i think it's a case of like there was abuse um i mean who knows maybe they met at a group like at a, at a thing for this and that you know but the assumption is a bit infantilizing why can't a woman be as sordid and um and uh you know <laughs> violate but i this is okay this is a clear example now there was one case of him having sex with a dead chicken Chicken necrophiliacsonly.com. Okay, That's how but they I'm, listen, you know what happened in the other cases? This is disgusting. I mean, what? it's not surprising. Chickens are, he killed the chickens. Okay. Through the intercourse. Ah. So it's like rape, murder. And with, if he had stuck to the dead chickens, now I would like to for them to have been not not dead if you if you kill the chicken through intercourse i can't believe i'm saying this if you if you <laughs> rape and kill a chicken then you don't get any cred there's no harm reduction in you then having sex with that chicken unless it prevents you from having sex with a live chicken which you will kill so what okay. i'm just i'm saying is that if you have that thing just find a dead chicken no harm no foul so would, would you would you rather a person had a sex with a with a dead person or a live horse? Dead person. Okay. I'm not an an. I'm not an animal. I'm not a freak. <laughs> I'm glad you're able to draw these distinctions. Yeah. Okay. So our our consensus basically is that having sex with something with the intent of killing it through intercourse is is bad and worse than doing it with an already dead creature. Yes, definitely. Okay. I mean, Matt, I can't. I mean, that's kind of a red, uh, red a line in the sand for me. Like, if <laughs> we're going to continue co-hosting. Yeah, we got to be on the same page here. Yeah, we, we, I think I think though, Matt, you're you're probably right on the math on this one. Uh, let's move on to isn't that weird? Which I actually just I just made a terrible one. Any you know, it, it's it's isn't that terrible? Again, I'm sorry, Elvis. If we could see um, the sinkhole story, which was sent to us by the way by. Uh, at Luminator24. So thanks to that listener. So the headline, Man plummets into sinkhole as he waits for bus, finds horror below, is the headline. Good headline. I like that. Yeah. Also, Leonard Shoulders. That's his name. is Leonard Shoulders. Leonard Shoulders. Great name for the victim. Might even be real. You know, who knows? The so rains and a sinkhole caused this building to collapse. Storms in East Delhi, India saw floodwaters wash away trees, but then onlookers noticed a two-story structure was also under threat. Wow. A huge sinkhole opened up and the building crumbled into it. No one was injured in the scary scene as emergency crews rushed in as all the building's inhabitants were able to flee before it collapsed. So, um... That was actually a the Indian sinkhole story. That's not, not even the right story. I'm sorry, the, but that was that that was the video that was above the actual story. Okay, got it. Which was about a New York City person, uh, and it says a New York City man was waiting for a bus recently when he fell into a sinkhole that held an, another horrific surprise for him. Uh, dash a swarm of rats. Leonard Shoulders, 33, suffered a broken arm and a broken leg in the 12 to 15 foot plummet after the ground gave way on a Bronx sidewalk. His brother, Greg White, told the New York Daily News on Monday. He couldn't move and the rats were crawling all over him, what White said. He didn't scream because he didn't want the rats going in his mouth. Oh. Uh, the victim's mother, Cindy White, had similar comments for NBC New York. Quote, he's traumatized, she said. 
The rats down there were ridiculous. They were so big, White said her son told her. Uh, and then that's kind of basically the rest of the story. So, so did he, was he shoulder deep? Heads, shoulders, knees, and toes? Were they all uh, <laughs> in the same pole? It's, I mean, it sounds like he was, you know, it's, it's kind of got that Indiana Jones kind of feel where he was he was down there and, and completely surrounded by rats to the point where he didn't want to scream because they would right. fall into his mouth. There is video of that, by the way. Oh, there yeah. is. Oh, okay. The victim is still being treated at the hospital. His brother tells us he is alert and recovering, but is deeply traumatized by what happened. Surveillance video shows a man walking to the bus stop on 3rd Avenue by 183rd Street Saturday. And as he waits, he takes a step forward and all of a sudden disappears oh. into the sidewalk. This is a, a, a classic. This is more of a classic. Isn't this isn't that terrible story? Yeah, because he, basically what what the you end up thinking after you see a story like this is oh my god every time i walk on the sidewalk it, it could give in and i could right. fall uh 15 feet below and be and end up surrounded by really really big rats that are going to go in my mouth he so. could have gone like this really loudly that's what right yeah if he, had, if he if he had trained to squeak for help or if he'd been a um yeah but the squeaking may have they may have thought it was a fellow rat and but if he or if he had learned to telekinetically singer. communicate right. with rats, they might have even helped him out, right? Right. If he had just learned, you know, that's the type, you know what? It's like imperialism. You can't just j expect to, like, drop yourself into a, into a place where you don't belong, where you don't speak the language, where you think you're better than them, and then expect them not to, and then expect them to greet you warmly. Right. So exactly. I just, again, if you're going to, you can't, you got to learn the culture before you do that anthropological work you can't just you know be you know put your pith helmet on yeah and exactly diving into like you know an, an indigenous rat home exactly and expect to dominate the place right it doesn't work like that you're no, not entitled to those like natural resources right exactly yeah. yeah anyway that was the four food groups this week pretty good don't don't fall in holes don't uh, try don't, to conquer rats don't try to conquer rats don't have sex with Animals in general, definitely not live animals, definitely, definitely not, not small of animals. Them that way. I, I mean, yeah, but even look, legally if speaking, you, if you're going to have sex with animals, make sure they're dead already. Exactly. So I guess we should talk a little bit about the news of the week. Matt, you're getting so much love on the internets. Yeah, well, you know, I'm taking a bit of an unpopular position, but now you know what it's like to be me with my necrophilia. <laughs> right. Yeah, bravery. exactly. Yeah. No, but you, yeah. I mean, look, and, and we don't have to go into this that long, but the, the significant thing that happened in the last week, as far as I'm concerned, isn't that this Hunter Biden story is that big of a deal. I don't think it's great. It, there, there are elements to it that are certainly don't look good. And they certainly suggest also that Joe Biden has been lying about some things, uh, but whatever that's that's totally beside beside the point the issue here is that twitter and facebook are stepping in to stop this story and if that becomes like a thing that happens going forward where um basically the companies that control you know 80 to 90 percent of the distribution in this country for news stories suddenly decide that they're going to start making decisions about what what we can and cannot see based on what's clearly an evolving standard of you know tolerance for 
unverified type stories. I mean, they, they didn't step in uh, with the Steele dossier. I think we remember when, uh, and Glenn brought this up, when Michael Avenatti went on MSNBC on li- live TV and and announced the, the Julie Swetnick ac- accusation, right? So um, I don't remember anybody stepping in and saying, hey, wait, wait, we can't. We can't uh, have that. Well, so the, the Russians didn't do it, apparently. Well, well, and it's so, okay, and that's the second thing, and and, yeah. and this this to me is the is the bigger problem because we saw what happened with the reporter Bo Erickson from CBS, oh who, who who did basically just what you're supposed to do in a situation like this. Actually, with if the story is false, the politician wants to to have the chance to say so. Right. So, Bo, so Bo Erickson just his crime was what asking Biden. Yeah, he, said, he said, "Sir, do you have a, do you have any reaction to the New York Post story, sir?" Right on the tarmac, and Biden exploded at him with that, with you know, that, his weird genetic. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, very strange. Uh, but then, not only that, there were a whole host of other journalists who started accusing him of uh, being part of a disinformation campaign. You know, Ben Rhodes, who used to be Obama's national security advisor, went after him on that uh, in that score. And so, you know, what ends up happening with people like this, or, I mean, I think another example is, you know, Ken Vogel, who did that story in Politico a while ago about Andrea Chalupa. And then he did a story a year ago about the Biden family's business interest in Ukraine and got a ton of shit for it and was also accused of being a Russian operative. What ends up happening is, you know, people just don't want to go near that. Right. Stuff. It works. It works. Right. It works. And the only people who are going to say anything about it are people who have like a completely independent source of income, you know, like, you know, me or, or Glenn. Right? And we get it anyway. Uh, so. Right. And then it's like there's a lot of cowardice, which then makes it look it all, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way, because then not only is it just you and Glenn or a handful of people, Aaron, whatever, but because you're not surrounded by anyone besides right-wing people, it looks like it's a right-wing position when it's right. not inherently a right-wing position. It's not. It's 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 like a traditional ACLU. Yeah, I don't. Un- yeah, I know. This is it's so disturbing. Also, I think people don't understand a, a little bit about what the ethics are of stories like this. So, OK, in the back in the day, if a news organization was going to put something out in, in print that, um, you know, that, that you might say had a, had a high risk of turning out not to be true. You know, it was really on them, right? In, in other words, like you, the, let, let's just say the New York Post puts out the story. The equation is, okay, you get a lot of sensational attention for putting this story out, but you have to be willing to take the hit if it turns sideways and that was the disincentive for people to put out uh fake news once upon a time because if you put out something and it turned out not to be true you 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 might risk litigation which would be financially disastrous and then you would take additionally like the reputational hit of it not being true right? right so you know if you think about what happened to reporters like janet cook who did that uh, inf- there was an infamous story in the 80s about a 
that turned out to be fake about a, a, a poor kid in Washington or or even, you know, our own sort of Rolling Stone experience, right? With it, like the, the hit from those things used, is, is pretty intense, right? Yeah. And, and there's already a massive disincentive to to doing fake news because you pay a pretty heavy penalty, especially the, the individual reporter used right. to, right? So that's why we presume usually that it's it's at least solid enough that we have to check it out because they're putting their careers in the line to put it out there. And sometimes they know something else that they're not saying, like right. an off, off the record confirmation, right? Or they know a little bit more about where it came from than they're allowed to say. Usually like that, that's the pun, that's the punishment mechanism that we used to have. But now what they're saying is, now we can't have that. We're just going to preemptively make sure that you don't, you don't get to see stories like this. Yeah. And um, again, it's like, okay, the Pentagon, I mean, the Pentagon papers, why that that's okay because it's domestic. I mean, it's just, yeah, I don't understand. Trump's I guess taxes. Yeah. That's the thing. It's like, if you want to be, that's the thing because a lot of these people, if we brought up the Pentagon papers or if that had happened now, it's like WikiLeaks, they, a lot of these people paid that stuff. But but the example that is like, do you really want to go down this road is the Trump taxes thing. Like, don't they get this? But then again, it's like we know in a way it makes sense because I think we said this the last time we spoke about this, but it's like these people probably just have their own self-interest in mind and they know that the precedent isn't going to be applied fairly. So... They're just not principled. This is, by the way, this was the, the Jake, it was Jake Sherman mm-hmm. who um, he tweeted. I tweeted a link to the New York Post story right after it dropped yesterday morning. I immediately reached out to the Biden campaign to see if they had any answer. I wish I had given the story a closer read before tweeting it. Twitter suspended me. I don't really understand like what he would have, what the closer read would have revealed. Yeah, and, and there are reasons to think that the story like it is not fake. Yeah. I mean, like, if, if you're making the calculation just in, ter- just in terms of what we know publicly already, there are some things that would lend that would lend you to think that it's real. Number one, the photos. Number two, the the, the Biden campaign hasn't denied it, right. which is you know telling. And then there's a couple little things, like there's one person on the email chain who apparently said, "Yes, that's that's a real email." There's some indications about documents about receipts that Hunter Biden apparently signed at the repair shop, although I don't know how much credence you give that. But the it's certainly nothing like the Steele dossier where you have nothing to go on. You know, all you have is the reputation of the person that's giving you the stuff. So people replied, like people I respect were like, I, I said, like, why, what would he have, what would he have seen? What was a closer look, a closer read would have revealed and there, someone's like that was, that it was rat fuckery. But like, that's not, it's fake. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's not, it's fake. I mean, I guess it's like people think it's watered. I mean, so this well, is, it's like the, the files, the therapy files that they released. What did they do with Ellsberg? I know it's not comparable, but let's use that as a, I think it's a good tool to Yeah, so the, the, pl- the plumbers, Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt broke into, into Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office and they got material out of there. Um, I, I don't even know. Did they actually publish it? I don't, I don't I, know. I don't remember. Uh, they did do that. You know, that, right. that was horrible. Uh, it should be pointed out also that when Ellsberg did what he did, they immediately accused him of being in league with the Soviets. I and mean, this is like part of the playbook, right? 
Um, you can go back and find New York Times stories about that uh, even even today. But uh, like, there's there's a I think people have gotten confused in their minds about what the, the difference between misinformation and disinformation and like malinformation is. Like, right. yes, it's a political hit job. Yes, right. it's clearly designed to hurt the Biden campaign. Yeah. Yes, Just like the might... tax record, uh, tax things for, for Trump. Right. And it and it might have come from a very questionable source. It might have been stolen, like all of those things. But that's it's different from it being untrue. And they're they're actively trying to conflate those ideas in people's minds. Um, or just that it's untouchable, I feel like, you know what I mean? It's like untrue, but also they don't even have to go there in a way. They're not denying it. It's just like, how dare you even entertain that information? Like it becomes it's not fair game. It's not appropriate. It's not newsworthy if the way it was broken is at all problematic. But here is a question. I mean, I agree with you and I don't, what, what do you say? I guess, cause the Ellsberg, there was no, should people have published the Ellsberg files or I mean, not depending on papers, the psychiatrist, it had, let's say they had psychiatric stuff. Is that like, well, the reason, the reason you don't publish that stuff is cause you're going to get sued for doing, for, for doing oh, right. it, you know? Um, you know, if, if it's, that's defamation of character, the, uh, I, the news, yeah. the news value in there right. is you also really highly argue, questionable. Right? Okay. Right. It, that's just like right? a vindictive uh, thing to do, I guess. I mean, that is an interesting question, right. right? Like I, I viscerally and intuitively know that there's a big difference between those two things, but. Right. Yeah. But this is, so the Supreme court standard on this is that you, you're allowed to publish stolen material as long as it's in the public interest. Right. I think the case is Bartnicki v. Vopper, actually. And they they uh, cited that. And remember when the DNC sued um, uh, the Russians and the Trump campaign and WikiLeaks right. over what happened in 2016? And the judge is like, yeah, it's stolen, uh, but you couldn't establish that WikiLeaks was involved with with the theft. And you can't prevent them from publishing because it's in the public interest. Right. So there's a, there's a public interest standard. And so that so that those are the two tests you have to meet. I don't I don't think the personal psychiatric files right. of a whistleblower would ever meet no. that kind of standard. So you'd probably lose a lawsuit on that. Right. And what about had it just been Hunter's drug stuff um, versus the corruption stuff? You know, I don't I think that that's that's pretty out of bounds. The only argument yeah. you can conceivably make about that is that Joe Biden's a hypocrite when it comes right. to his, his own record when it comes to criminal justice. Drug use. Right. But I mean, right. look, there's yeah. already Hunter Biden's sex tapes out there. Like some people publish that stuff, which is completely uh, ridiculous. The the only thing about the the photos is that they they do tend to lend some credibility to the other material so right. i mean I, I don't know if i'd you pick the ones right. with the crack pipes but anyway it's just a weird thing it's like if we close our eyes like burying our head there's some ostrich analogy in there but yeah i i, I just think people don't realize where this is going to go right. pretty quickly it's already true that if you publish a video of the united states committing war crimes you're going to go to jail for the rest of your life or be extra i mean that's yeah i yeah. still can't get over that like so how is that possible so they're constantly narrowing the scope of what's like acceptable and that that that's pretty scary but anyway the so scary is they're going to keep doing that until and unless someone is got is per, is like persecuted or prosecuted for something like the trump tax 
storms. Right. Yeah, exactly. Until, until somebody with a little bit of establishment backing, you know, uh, ends up at, on the wrong end of this. Right. And look, the Republicans are going to push back on, on this post thing. But it's it's similar to Watergate. Like, you know, the United States government was breaking into the offices of Socialist Workers Party and nobody right. cared about that until they broke into the Democratic Party. Right, exactly. Party offices. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? So, right. Then it was too much. Then they crossed well, the line. Yeah. We'll see. All right. So this is our last show before the election. I guess we should just get into what what's your prediction? Biden. Although I'm still hold, I'm still a little bit worried about the potential of um, overly representing, you know, the discrepancy between Republicans and Democrats turning out physically because of their different generalizing obviously but because the hoax you know because the view that corona or covid is either a hoax or treatable um easily treatable as as we saw with donald trump is held obviously much more among trump voters than non-trump voters but right do you have a number in terms of electoral college votes okay no do you you probably do right no no i don't i mean i think i think it's going to be over 300 for for biden but you know we'll see uh, the, the one thing that I thought was a major tell, and Elvis, if we could see this video, uh, was Trump over the weekend talking about how he wants to get in a truck and drive away. I don't know if you if you saw this. This no. is amazing. Is he going to become a um, the next OJ? Something like that, yeah. By the way, nice trucks. You think I could hop into one of them and drive it away? I'd love to uh, just drive the hell out of here. Just get the hell out of this. I had such a good life. My life was great. And then I said, let's do this, darling. This will be a lot of fun. But you know what? I'm so happy with it because nobody has ever done so much in the first three and a half years. No administration. That sounds a little Thelma and Louise-ish. Right? What's interesting about that video, though, is it underscores what I've always believed about 2016 that he didn't think he was going to win or want to be president he just did it because he thought it would be he he thought it would be funny basically i i I think he you know there were there were probably multiple motivations like he thought he would be promoting a new television show he probably wanted on some level to get back at the people at uh you know at nbc or whatever it was like but he he thought it would be a gas right and Having covered his campaign in the beginning, you could clearly tell through the first half of the campaign until he basically wrapped up the Republican nomination that he was enjoying the hell out of the process. He was bringing his family everywhere he went. They seemed to actually like it, like they were going on stage with him a lot. And then as soon as it turned into the general election and there was this whole like, oh, my God, are we trying to win this thing or what? It turned super dark and they, they they didn't do as much media and like he seemed like on edge all the time. Uh, his speeches got more scripted. I, like I think I really think that he didn't have any intention of winning. And in a way, I bet he's going to be relieved when this is over. Yeah, I think uh, I think people are going to be they're going to realize because the next person that comes along and we're going to talk about this with our next our, our guests. The next person who comes along trying to do what he did is is not going to be the dummy that Trump is, and th- and people are going to be they might be nostalgic a little bit for how helpless and, right. and stupid 
Trump was in in reality. Right. Uh, right. Yeah, he'll be more. I mean, he won't, but his administration will be much more uh, adept, um, and he won't be recycling through people. Um, right. Look out for the lunge, by the way. I forgot about this. I used to joke about the the jazzy lunge that Biden would do, and during the last debate, I know I I saw he did it again. The lunge. It's just a, a move he does. It's not politically significant. I just think we should keep track of it. What does he do? He'll do it. I mean, he did it at, at the inauguration. It's like he does a point to people. He'll do like a one like a, a one legged lunge. But then after the debate, he did a two legged lunge, more like a squat when he was talking to the host. It's just a, I mean, the host, the like um, a dance the moderator, like kind of like ride the tractor move. Is it? Is that? Well, like, yeah, it's not like repeated, and I he's see. not twerking or anything. Um, <laughs> no, it's just an interesting thing. Look out for the, the lunges. Okay. All right. Well, we'll do that. And let's, uh, we're going to talk about this now with some of our favorite guests, yes. uh, Crystal Ball, Sagra, and, and Jetty of uh, the, the Hills Rising show. They're going to have an interesting take on this because they really represent, I mean, the whole purpose, the whole conceit of the show is that they talk about populism on both the left and the right. And in a lot of ways, what's going to happen next week is really going to be uh a referendum on a lot of that thinking yeah um well they talk about everything but they share populist tendencies like that's what unites them she's on the left he's on the right they really disagree on social and cultural issues but what i really appreciate about them is just how honest they are and how how able they are to like analyze things on their own merits and own terms like not on whether or not they like it but whether or not it's effective which i find kind of rare right Right. Uh, so let's 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 talk to uh, Crystal and Sagar. Your voice matters more than ever this election, which is why we want to hear from you. Useful Idiots has a brand new way for you to stay connected to the show with Yappa audio and video commenting. Instead of standard text, Yappa gives you the power to talk face to face for real honest conversations. Leave us an audio or video yap and tell us what you think about the elections. You just might hear yourself on air. Tune in Monday, November 2nd at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time or noon Pacific Time for Useful Idiots Live with special guest Tanache to delve into all things 2020 politics. Tagger, Crystal, so glad to have you guys on. Welcome back to the show. So good to see you guys. So um, wanted to know your thoughts on your predictions about the election to start off. Sagar, why don't you go first? Ooh, oh, she's going to stand <laughs> with that one. Um, okay, look, I, it's funny. I was just talking about this with somebody. I took a lot of effort, you know, and after 2016 to try and understand what went wrong for the polling, you know, for the polling profession, punditry, arrogance, try to be more humble. I have tried and I've looked at several different scenarios and i just don't see how it's really in the cards for trump it would have to be the greatest polling error um, in modern american history since 1948 for that to happen i'm not yet convinced that that is the case particularly in states like pennsylvania michigan wisconsin um, the industrial midwest arizona as well tech my own home state of texas georgia the nature of where things are Something we talked about on our show recently is that an early indicator of a Trump win was district-level polling. So even though state polling would not necessarily capture how Trump was doing, you could actually see swings in white working-class districts, which were in a very early indicator of a Trump win. We don't see the same level of support amongst college-educated whites, which 
every poll you look at, you know, now that they have refined some of the way that they do this, is just fleeing away from Trump. He hasn't added anyone new to the coalition, and I think that's not going to work out for him on election day. And did you um, predict, uh, were you very surprised in 2016? Did you have any thoughts that Trump would maybe win? I was surprised, but not as surprised as everybody else. Right. So my final election map was 272 Hillary, Trump, you know, whatever. I didn't have, basically, I didn't have him winning Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, but I had him winning everything else, which I hmm. think, you know, 272, I was like, hey, I think this is a 51-48 election right. um, on the night. I, I was like, I still think Hillary's going to win, but there you go. So I, was, I wasn't as confident as I think a lot of people were. What about you, Crystal? Um, I think I was more wrong than Sagar last time around <laughs> uh, in terms of the, I definitely had Hillary winning Florida and the industrial Midwestern, the blue wall states. Um, and it, last time around, it was a really weird experience for me because I was, um, it was after MSNBC canceled our show in 2015. So I moved after that to the state of Kentucky and I was experiencing that election through a combination of being in Kentucky and then being periodically in like New York green rooms. And so I did have this sense of like this massive divide and disconnect between the conversation that was happening in elite media circles versus what I was seeing and witnessing and experiencing um, because, you know, they just they didn't think he had a shot at all. It was like a joke. I mean, I, you probably remember those clips of like people just laughing it up like Trump would never be president. That's ridiculous, mm -hmm. you know. Um, you so I wasn't maybe moment when when Ann Coulter was on yeah. the Bill Maher show. Oh and, yeah, right. And she she said something about how she thought Trump was going to win, and like the entire building erupted in laughter. It was yeah. it was like iconic. Yeah. But, yeah, um, that didn't last. That laughter and that uh, merriment. So. I mean, my electoral analysis is basically the same as, as Sagar's in terms of just looking at the mm -hmm. polls. I do think it's a very different dynamic than 2016. Um, and I think there's very clear reason why. Um, Trump has basically done everything wrong, right? All of the reasons that he won in 2016, he has gone in the other direction. And so you had the specter of at the last debate, he's out there arguing against the minimum wage like he's like Paul Ryan and Mitt Romney. Okay, this is the polar opposite of how he ran back in 2016, when he positioned himself to the left of Hillary on a few key issues like trade, like infrastructure, in some ways, even on health care. And beyond that, look, there's war, a, a also. yeah, war, war yeah. exactly. Very good point. Um, and beyond that, look, the number one issue for voters is coronavirus. He's done an objectively terrible job. People cannot go about their normal lives and they're still afraid of dying and they can't send their kids to school. And oh, by the way, some of the most critical battleground states in the country are experiencing a massive surge right now. He continues to not take it seriously. And ultimately, I think that is the death knell for his campaign on the issue when it came down to actually governing and actually, you know, putting out some of the like big authoritarian energy that he's always accused of. He didn't step up to the plate when Americans actually wanted some of that like big daddy governance right. energy. Um, whereas, you know, you look at an Andrew Cuomo, who also had an objectively bad response in New York. But just by putting out that like big daddy government energy and being like, I've got this and doing the press conferences, that was enough for people to give him soaring approval ratings. That's all people wanted from Trump. It, the bar was so freaking low and he just couldn't manage to accomplish that even for one day. Which is really too bad because I would have loved to have seen Trump do a mega poster the way that uh, Andrew Cuomo did. <laughs> I mean, isn't isn't that one of the the big 
dichotomies about how we we covered the the Trump administration because the the narrative is that he's an authoritarian fascist dictator. I mean, these these words are like in the headlines next to mm-hmm. his name. But the, the reality was more like he was completely incapable of exercising executive power. He had no clue how yes. to do it. Uh, and he, he didn't demonstrate any ability whatsoever to even keep teams together long enough to actually accomplish his terrible ideas. Like with a few exceptions, like the, the border policy with children, you know, but there, there were very few of those. Right. I mean, isn't that what actually happened? Yes, that's the story of the Trump era. The story of the Trump era is that he actually came into office and was completely unable to execute on many of the things that he promised, except for trade policy. And even then, on trade, it took like seven months. I don't know if everybody remembers this, but he hired Gary Cohn, formerly of Goldman Sachs, um, who fought him every single part of the way to get those damn tariffs um, on China, something he said he would do on day one. He still never f- uh, fulfilled his promise to label them as a currency manipulator until years into the administration on monetary policy, on so many different things. Same thing on immigration. I know everybody else here doesn't care, but he wanted to build a wall on the southern border. And there was a way to get that done. The very first month of the administration with Paul Ryan, with something called the border adjustment tax, which would have actually made Mexico pay for a wall, $25 billion wall. And guess what? He folded. Um, He folded there. He folded on the next spending bill. He folded during the government shutdown. He never was able to legislatively get anything through Congress. I kind of knew it was over after that shutdown. I was like, Mm -hmm. this is it. We're going to do a bunch of fake executive orders, but we are going full bore Romney Ryanism. You know, I was just looking at at Trump's approval rating, the lowest approval he's ever had was the day those tax cuts passed. And I think mm. that tells you everything you need to know. He governed like Romney Ryan, and he's going he's gonna to have Romney Ryan electoral results as a result of that. <laughs> why so do you terrible. think he folded yeah. on the border wall? I think he folded because, well, here's why. I mean, I know what happened, which is that Paul Ryan was like, don't worry, Mr. President, we'll give it to you next time in the next spending bill. And McConnell was like, oh, yeah, 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 don't worry. And many of us were like, don't listen to them. They never follow through on what they're going to do. And that's what happened. Um, so eventually he found himself right after the midterm elections being, oh shit, um, I haven't built this wall. And so right. he shuts the government down for three weeks, right? I mean, I don't know if everybody remembers that. Yeah. He was like, we're going to get this funding. We're going to get this funding. We're going to get this funding. And he screwed that up from the beginning because he told Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, he was like, I will take responsibility, which is like the greatest thing they could ever, you know, they could dream of in terms of getting. And then he tried to do it with executive order and look, actually, it turns out that we do live in a country of checks and balances. It's actually not all that easy to transfer money around from DEA and border and all this. And there's a lot of legal restrictions around that. And so what's happened? There's been like maybe a couple hundred new miles of replacement wall. That's it. Um, and that was a central promise. And I think it's like a, it's like a literal embodiment of something that he said he was going to do. You don't even hear him talk about it anymore. Yeah, no, I mean, that is what's wild. Matt, I can't tell you how many times I've um, inartfully quoted your line about how 
look, if he wanted to do like some military coup, it's not that he would morally object to the idea, but like two minutes into the discussion, he'd get bored, <laughs> put on a robe, yeah. go watch Fox News and eat a cheeseburger. Like, yeah. I mean, that's really the thing. It's like, yeah. in some ways, that incompetence, certainly in the pandemic, it's been an utter disaster and catastrophe for Americans. In some ways, it's been a saving grace because it's kept him from executing on some of the more, you know, in my view, terrible things that he wanted to do. But yeah, this idea that he has this grand authoritarian or fascist plan and the capability to execute that, I think has been the the greatest misconception of the media and of a lot of liberals in the Trump era. I see him much more as the sort of logical end result of late stage capitalism than anything else. He's like more Wendy's than Hitler. He's like Wendy's and like 90s episodes of cops and celebrity culture and consumerism all like mashed into this ungodly <laughs> conglomerate of a person. <laughs> but the, I, and I think it's very comfortable for people to be like, this is part of why they love the Russiagate narrative is because, because then it's like, oh, this isn't about us. This is some foreign thing injected into our politics that we certainly have nothing to do with. This came from somewhere else. Someone's pulling the strings. Whereas the reality of Donald Trump that a lot of media and certainly a lot of the Democratic Party and a lot of the Republican Party doesn't want to face either is that Donald Trump is as American as apple pie. He is 100 percent a creation of the society and the culture and the incentive structure and the celebrityism and all of that stuff that we have built here, all of us together over decades and decades. To me, that piece, that lack of reckoning, that lack of thinking that through and what that means in terms of if you want to prevent another Trump type outcome is one of the greatest failings of and losses of this period. Can I just ask one more question since we don't usually have someone like Sagar on the show? Um, why did McConnell and Ryan uh, wait? Were they ideologically or kind of strategically opposed to the wall? Yeah, basically. So look, after 2012, what happened is that Reince Priebus, who was the RNC chairman, commissioned this thing called the autopsy. It right. was like, why did Mitt Romney lose? And everyone was like, they came to this consensus which was that the GOP had turned off too many Latino voters and therefore they needed to go full-blown like comprehensive immigration reform and all of that. This was drilled into the heads of everybody. It was the party line. It led to Gang of Eight, which was that comprehensive immigration reform bill, which sparked a huge backlash to the base, from the base, destroyed Marco Rubio's candidacy forever. You know, that's a lot of people think it was just Trump. It was really that, um, what killed it. And so they ideologically put that into their worldview about immigration, and they also combine that with deficit hawkery. So spending $25 billion on a wall, you know, you can spend as much as you want on the F-35, but, you know, selective deficit hawkery um, whenever it comes to a border wall, which also, according to their failed, econ- or their failed electoral theory, is violating, they said, no, 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 we can't do any of that. And that's why they killed it. The truth is the median GOP senator not only opposes the wall, they oppose any sort of domestic discretionary spending, which is non-military. Any increase and are for large decreases in that part of the budget. It's only 7% of the budget, but you know they don't want to talk about that because uh, it's an easy way to go after not just social programs, but any sort of um, extra, extra congressional spending. So it's a complicated answer, and it actually requires you to really understand the dynamics um, of the conservative movement. 
but it goes back to that autopsy and it's combined with deficit hawkery, something that they, is baked in to the GOP lawmaker, but not the GOP voter. That's the key. Thing I also think I also obviously my yeah. view on immigration yeah. is radically different from Sagar's. However, I also think that there is a baked in disincentive for um any of our legislators to actually try to solve um, the many complex social problems that we have. Sure. Because the moment that you actually like take any sort of ownership o- of it and try to pass something, try to do something and actually try to fix it, two things happen. Number one, um, it's easy to attack something that you can always find some problem with it, right? Some way it wasn't perfect and just relentlessly, you know, go to the media with like, it failed in this way, it failed in that way. So it opens you up as a target. And that respect. You can see like the GOP on Obamacare, which was far from perfect. I'll be the first to say, but it was far easier for them to attack Obamacare and point out all its failures than it was ever for them to ultimately craft their own plan. So that's number one thing that happens. Number two thing that happens is if you have an issue that really juices your base, the way that immigration does the Republican Party, the way that like the Democratic Party uses the minimum wage to juice their base in the Democratic Party, Um, If you take that off the table, you don't get to use that issue anymore. So that's why, for example, you know, anytime we had the minimum wage lifted back when they raised it to 725, they could easily have tied it to inflation. So you don't have to keep going back and having another act of Congress, another act of Congress to make sure that wages are keeping up with the cost of living increase. But they don't do that. And the reason they don't do that is because they like to have it as an issue to be able to score points. And that's why we can't have nice things. Okay, I've got kind of a heavy question for for both of you. Uh, So obviously your show Rising is very dedicated to the idea of populist thinking on both the left and the right. You you wrote a book, The Populist Guide to 2020. Mm -hmm. Um, If Biden wins, what's the future of populism in this country? Because the the propaganda, a lot of the story the last four years has been the attempt to delegitimize really both forms of of populist thinking. I mean, they've mm-hmm. identified both Bernie Sanders and, and of course, the whole Trump phenomenon is related to foreign interference. Um, do you what do, what do you think is going to happen under a Democratic administration in terms of maybe new speech controls, other things like that? My prediction for the Biden era is that very little actually happens. Um, you know, partly for the reasons that I just laid out. Democrats are very good at feigning impotence. We saw this in the SCOTUS hearings as well. They're very good for coming up with reasons why, oh, this mean Republicans, like we want to do better health care and we want to lift wages, but gosh, Mitch McConnell is just he's so wily. Geez, we can't get it done. <laughs> so that even now, you know, with Obama, he's doing his new book and he's he's detailing once again the health care fight. And he's talking about, oh, we didn't have, you know, anywhere close to the public option votes that these crazy progressives wanted, leaving out the fact that, you know, I mean, they had a supermajority. They had the House. There were plenty of other legislative maneuvers and techniques that he could have used. He could have gotten rid of the filibuster if he wanted to at that point, something that he acknowledges now. So Democrats are good at coming up with excuses for why they can't get anything done. And in some ways, I think you know, failing to address these root cause issues that brought us Trump in the first place is a real disaster waiting to happen. Because if you hated the Trump era, 
look, we got lucky that he's like this incompetent, bumbling fool, ultimately, who doesn't exactly. really have an ideology, doesn't really care about policy, doesn't actually want to accomplish anything other than seeing his face on TV. But that doesn't mean that that situation persists forever. And so if the Democratic Party remains bent on, and they will, and remain successful at closing down any sort of left populism answer to this problem that's a more communitarian in nature, then I think we're headed for a very dark place. Mm. Uh, I, I have a very similar answer. I think the future is both bleak and bright. So to explain it in that in the short term, it's extraordinarily bleak on the right because the forming narrative is that Trump is going, it will have lost if he does lose on the right. What they're going to say is he spent too much money. That's just the first thing that, that he did wrong. And the second thing he did wrong was he took coronavirus too seriously and allowed lockdowns in order to go into place. Obviously, these are both just completely wrong. Actually, both of those things are wildly in step with the American public, but not out. But it justifies a broader libertarian ideology of what they want to do and are very equipped to do for the Biden era which is oppositional politics. So McConnell and the entire GOP, their infrastructure is built for one thing, which is to launch bullshit investigations like Benghazi, fundraise a ton of money from the base off of such investigations, and then not allow the whatever administration to do anything to cry about deficits, et cetera. Again, these are things not popular within the base. Why is the future bright in some way? And I cover this recently, actually, on the show, which is that the voters that are moving to Biden are college-educated white suburbanites. Overwhelmingly, these are actually the only voters in the country who are fiscally conservative. So you are shedding all of the fiscal conservative voters to Joe Biden, which means you're left with working-class whites and some increase, not a lot, not majority whatsoever, of Latino voters and very marginal increase amongst black voters. So my th thinking is, is that the future is bright because if you want to win, that's the only way to do it, is you have to go after the 60% of the country which has not gone to college. And I think the college education, four-year college degree, is the great dividing line in America. Not even income, not, not anything else, I, not even suburbs. I mean, I think that that is it right there. It's highly correlated, which is one of the things that you have, and that if you can become the party of the working man, again, this is a very tall order, and I know everybody, all the left-wingers out there are rolling their eyes, but like I said, if you ever want to win an election again, I think that's just the only way to do it. Um, but I should caution, many people on the right are very comfortable being a minority party. It's very lucrative to launch Benghazi 3.0 and to write books about it and to issue subpoenas and to be like, I'm standing up to Obama, grandma, that's why you should put $5 in the mail and send it to me. You can make a whole lot of money like that here in DC. So maybe the bill will come due and the voters will actually demand that you do something for them. Or uh, the GOP just wants to be a permanent minority party and the left populist wing will eventually become ascendant and they will become the true, uh, the true you know, heads of the banner or whatever. 
Yeah, I think it's hard to imagine the donor class letting the, I mean, really letting either parties go in, in a decent direction. Look, the most likely thing to happen is the thing that has been happening, which is, yeah, you have more, the white population will split more along class and education lines. White working class people continue to drift to the Republican Party. White college educated people will continue to drift to um, the Democratic Party. Both have their own camp of elites that are sort of like industry specific um, you know, the oil and gas industry continues to be Republican. Wall Street is somewhat split, although moving more Democratic, Silicon Valley um, moving more and more Democratic. And the working class uh, will be split and divided primarily by race. And so that way you end up with no party actually representing the multiracial working class. I bring up the example um, of the Virginia Democratic Party to kind of illustrate what I mean by this dynamic, because this is the Democratic Party we have today. It is centered around the interest and policy preferences of white affluent suburbanites. And that is the party that we have in Virginia state I grew up in and place I still live in, which has experienced this dramatic trend from red to blue in a very, very short period of time. So Virginia is now a blue state. Blue, you know, Democratic governor, Democratic House of Delegates, Democratic Senate. And it is they passed things like the Equal Rights Amendment. They've these are all things I support, by the way. They've they've dealt with the Confederate monuments. They've dealt with a lot of identity issues, but they are still 51 out of 51 in terms of labor rights. So Yes. If you polled, you know what, if you polled white affluent suburbanites, you'd actually get some pretty progressive answers on economics. You'd get, you know, want to lift the minimum wage. You'd get probably majority support on Medicare for all. You'd get a lot of answers you would like. Will they ever actually prioritize those issues? Will they ever actually hold politicians to account on those issues? Are those the ones that get them jazz that they throw the side? No, ultimately not. And so that's that's the future I fear for the Democratic Party. But I think I'm less... Um, I have less expectation that the Republican Party is going to like pick up that, you know, pick up that working class mantle, certainly than Sagar does, because I just don't think that the I don't think the donor class will allow it. I don't think you see that much in terms of a shift along racial lines. And so I think it's much more likely that you just maintain this Republican Party plays to their keeps their base working white working class base in line on like culture, keeps them in the tent. Democratic Party, you know, does the same thing with a black and brown working class, keep everybody divided, and then no one has any real power. So so a, a related question. Um, yours is one of the only shows that has as an operating concept um, on-air personalities where there's one from, you know, nominally the left and one from nominally to the right, conservative, progressive. Uh, basically, that kind of show has disappeared from the, corp the corporate media landscape for the most part uh oh morning joe is on the air what are you talking oh about? yeah right oh yeah i guess i guess that's true <laughs> what what do you think do you do you think i mean do you think the experience and the success of your show is going to lead to more of that in the future or what do, what have you seen in terms of the media landscape recently that suggests that is that kind of cleaving uh, uh factor going to increase or is it going to or is it going to, they're going to back off it if we uh, don't have Trump anymore. Mm. Matt's asking question. that for our own marketing purposes. Yeah. <laughs> you can do it direction a little, we're going to brand go research. Yeah. 
Look, I, what I will say, I, I can't, I'm not sure I can answer the question on the media. Certainly elite media is going to continue to be divided, um, you know, along partisan lines. And a lot of people have trouble understanding, um, especially older people, frankly, have trouble kind of understanding sovereignized politics. And it's like, well, you agree <laughs> on these, which areas you agree on? Because yeah, yeah, the mix yeah. of agreement and disagreement is different than your normal, like Nicole Wallace talking to Neera Tannen across partisan lines, right? Um all I can say is that I've been extremely heartened by the fact that there's such a clear appetite for what we're doing because, and I say this not just as like, because yay, we're successful, but because, um, and Matt, you are, and I, I bring your book, Hey Dink, up all the time because you are the first person who I heard really make the point that, look, we had the Cold War and we had this external enemy, we had the war on terror, we had this external enemy. And then once that has kind of died down, media cable news, 24 hours, what are we going to do to get ratings? And it's to turn people against each other. And if we're not going to, we're not going to stay glued as a society. If we literally see not just elites in Washington or structures or systems or any of that as the enemy, but actually like the people in our town who voted for different people or have a different ideology, that they're like an existential threat, the biggest danger and threat to our own lives and livelihoods that's not a sustainable trajectory for us to be on. So look, Sagar and I have had conversations at times that were really uncomfortable. There have been times it's been heated, but I just feel like if if we can't even have this conversation, yeah. you know, then there's there's no hope left because obviously, look, we have a lot of we have a good relationship, we have a lot of trust between each other. You know, I I fully I fully know and understand and expect that Sagar is coming from like a well-intentioned and good-intentioned place. And I hope that he feels the same about me. And so um, the number of people have come to us and have said like, look, I couldn't even talk to my dad or my friend or my whoever about politics. And you guys have given us kind of a shared frame to be able to have that conversation and brought us back together has been extraordinarily encouraging and does say to me that there is some appetite for that conversation, for that understanding that, look, people are trying to figure out their lives the best mm. way they can. And, you know, sometimes that ends up in a good place. Sometimes it ends up in an ugly place. But if we stop expecting the best out of our friends and neighbors and treat them as that our like mortal enemies, it's going to end very badly for all of us. I co-sign everything Crystal just said. I, I do think it's an interesting question that you ask, Matt, on the actual economics of it, which is that how is it going to work out? Here's why I tell you I don't think anybody else will do it. We had to give up a lot. Um, and I know that it, it may not seem that way because the show is doing well, but we both formally exited the circular pipelines that exist on left and right. For example, I can make a lot of money uh, being the brown guy who supports Trump on Fox News. It's very easy, right? And I'm sure that Crystal can make a lot of money calling out Trump from the left, uh, doing that in another echo chamber. But we both decided not to do that and to consciously call out our own sides on our show, which pisses a lot of people off um, for a lot of different reasons. And by doing that, I wouldn't say we closed ourselves off to a lot of opportunity, but we closed ourselves off to existing opportunities because it's a new space. A lot of people are just very uncomfortable doing that. I have a lot of friends who do for quite well in the right-wing ecosystem. I'm sure Crystal knows a lot of people who do quite well in the left-wing ecosystem. It's a comfortable life in which you basically have an entire existing infrastructure that will take care of you um, once you're part of the team. 
people on the right are always looking at me quizzically like, eh, you know, sometimes he says things we agree with and sometimes not. It's like when you're an unreliable actor, um, they don't really know what to do with you. Um, and so they're always going to pick somebody who is a toady um, and who will go with the party line. I assume that the, it's probably the same dynamic on the left, but I don't know it as well. So that's why I don't think that others will try to do it just because it's hard. Um, it, you get a lot of pushback from everybody. On any one time, somebody is pissed off at me, whether it's Crystal's fans or um, sometimes I don't agree with her and then it's mine. It's like you never know where you're at. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. It's not a zone to operate in if you're just looking for like universal love and support. Yeah, this is not the, this is not the, not the thing to do if you just want to be loved. That's why we got to right. fight for universal programs. <laughs> That's it. Universal love for all or for those who want it either way. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you see your show as like a proof of concept that people from different sides can get along and, and, you know, even w without sacrificing their beliefs can actually work things out and have a respectful relationship. Is that part of the idea of the show? Completely. Um, yeah. I mean, I look at it, look, people and families in America do this all the time. Why can't anybody who represents them in media do it, right? I mean, that's that's definitely the way um, that I all have always conceived of it. And maybe it's because, you know, my parents are liberal. Like, I grew up hyper-liberal. I went George, George Washington, Georgetown. Like, I grew up around these people. I've always been kind of the contrarian guy you know, who's, you know. Family, you were the Alex Keaton in the family? Is that the Yeah, I mean, they always just like, everyone's just like puzzled. They're like, what? what is this guy doing, you know, and all the... Indians are always giving me like this side eye thing going on. We're like, I don't know about this guy. Like, but they, you know, they don't really understand what it is. I think the show is a proof of concept, which is that we live in an ethnically heterogeneous country. We live in an ideologically heterogeneous country. We live in a religiously heterogeneous country. I mean, we are one of the most mixed experiments. And I know this is hokey, but it's true. I've traveled all over the world. I've lived in ethnically homogenous places. They don't really disagree that much. I mean, you know, in Sweden, like, they have different parties, but like there's a lot of different shared assumptions. That's not the case um, in the U.S. I think that's what makes us the best. And I don't think it's reflected in our media culture whatsoever. And I'm glad um, that we can at least try to do some of that on the show. And what do you guys think of what will happen if Trump loses in terms of, you know, the Proud Boys standing by, um, you know, his, his call for them to stand down but stand by? Uh, is there going to be violence? Is there going to be, um, are there going to be legal attempts to get the, you know, annul the results? Look, I think it depends. Uh, and Sagarne may have somewhat different mm. views on this. I'll let him speak for himself. But um, I think it depends a lot on how close the election is. So if totally. it's, look, if it's close, Trump's going to do whatever, like, you know, whatever he could do. This guy is not like above <laughs> nefarious actions yeah. or inciting or any of that stuff. So, well, I don't I don't think it's realistic to expect he's actually going to have some like military coup plan. For one thing, the generals don't support yeah. him. And, and, you know, he's even lost a lot of the enlisted at this point, according to the polling. But and he doesn't have the follow through, as we discussed earlier. He'd just go and get his cheeseburger um, in Malt, malted, mis malted milkshake, <laughs> apparently. But but I don't also don't want to downplay how fraught a period of time this is. If you truly have a contested election and goes to the Supreme Court and all of this. Yeah, I think it's pretty likely we have um fair amount of civil unrest in the streets. I think I may be even more concerned about um, if Trump were to actually win, because um, I just don't think that I don't think liberals are not mentally prepared for that no. whatsoever. 
And then you've got, you know, people on the far left, the Antifa people who see this as, you know, part of this like grand project and they find meaning and self-actualization and like also spoiling for a fight. And I'm not trying to equate these things or any of that, but that's a very fraught dynamic as well. So um, there is a, a certainly a decent possibility that we are headed either way for some period of social unrest. What does that look like? What is the shape of it? I think it really depends. To me, the most calming um, potential situation is for it to be fairly clear Biden victory. You know, um, Florida is a state that a lot of people are pointing to. This is why Michael Bloomberg invested so much money in Florida, because um, surprisingly enough, they actually tend to get their results in fairly early on election night. They're one of the states, the swing states that's able to count their mail-in ballots ahead of time so that they should know on election night who voted by mail and what those tallies are. So and Florida is a state that um, Trump has basically has to win. Um, and so I think depending if, if he wins Florida, that's no guarantee for him. But if Joe Biden pulls off a Florida win and we know on election night, that's kind of my metric for people are more. Yeah, you're going to have cranks out there whatever, but people are more or less going to accept the results because it's not just to, to put a um, to clarify. It's Trump's words and incitements that I worry about more than his actual actions and the number of Kyle Rittenhouse type people who think that they're heroes and saviors and, you know, themselves trying to find meaning and whatever coming out into the streets. That's the piece that I worry about, not him himself fomenting some kind of like elaborate coup. Yeah, I, I, I basically concur, which is that I think that the there's like three scenarios, which is no violence whatsoever. I think that that is all, not guaranteed, but like near certain if Biden wins in a landslide victory. I think like tempestuousness at best, if it's close. Um, and word. so it's like people are uncertain. You're not entirely sure. And I think total batshit craziness if Trump wins. Um, all the buildings around here in my neighborhood are already starting to board up for a possible um, you know, Trump win. I was in D.C. on election night. And people, can I curse here? Like, yeah. curse, curse? Yeah. Okay, people lost their <laughs> fucking <laughs> minds, okay? Um, I was at the Trump Hotel the day after the election for job, my job, not because I was celebrating or whatever. And uh, I, I've never seen anything like it in terms of the vitriol, people throwing things, the marches. People are not prepared for another one of those. I think it would just be absolutely mass violence. I think the media would guarantee it. Um, and I just I think it would be like it, it would just be crazy is how what I think like you're you're not talking about like radical brunches or something. You're not talking about like the libs. You're talking about like leftists. No, no. I actually think it's the opposite. I think I am talking about the brunches. Right? Oh, so like, what I'm are they going to do? I, I mean, look, look in New York City. They're throwing Molotov cocktails, Harvard educated lawyers. I think that's oh, the yeah. most likely, you know, people look, I live here. You know, I mean, my neighborhood, it is Biden. Harris is a religion to these people. And if they don't win, I just I don't think they can handle it. Here's a problem with existential politics where you feel that the the world or your nation or your way of life is ending if you don't achieve a particular political outcome. That starts to justify virtually anything, yeah. right? I mean, if you really like if you have have listened to MSNBC every day say that Trump is literally Hitler and literally a fascist, and if he gets reelected, it's literally the end of the country then it's very easy to feel yourself morally justified in all sorts of actions that you never would have taken before. And I think the same is true on the right. I mean, I hear 
like uh, unbelievably irresponsible rhetoric, certainly from the president, but from other right wing personalities that are like, they're going to come for your kids and they're going to come for your grandparents. and They're going to indoctrinate your communities. I mean, you saw these Antifa scares that would spread on Facebook where people would think that like Antifa was going to invade their community and they'd show up when in force with guns ready to take them down. It was just a hoax. Like people are so on edge and really have been fed this line that this election is the end of the world for them if they don't win. So that doesn't guarantee that there's going to be social unrest, but it's not a good situation. It doesn't create like a happy, positive kind of a situation with people just ready to accept the Democratic results. You know, I I think uh, Chris Hedges makes a good point about this whole situation, which is if you look back at Yugoslavia before the hostilities broke out, there were all these groups that it was just really a bunch of guys who liked to dress up in camo and you know, pretend they were soldiers, walk around with guns. They, there was no expectation that there was ever going to be real violence, um, you know, prior to the moment when it actually broke out and then suddenly everything gets real. That's what I kind of worry about with the situation is that we've had this buildup of people who are, you know, they're kind of LARPing, right? To use the internet term, they're, they're, they're pretending at being um, this armed force or this militia for whatever side, but that can all turn real, like in a heartbeat, um, you know, with, with the wrong messaging and the wrong, the wrong news. And, and that, that's the concerning yeah. thing. On the other side, on the other side, we're so like fat and soft and addicted to sugar and Netflix. <laughs> and I mean, really, like it's, it's a joke, true. but it's also true. Like we have a lot of, as a society, we have a lot of opiates to dull, like really good. And I'm not, I mean, literal opiates, but I also mean like figurative opiates to sort of dull our senses and make us not as agitated and kind of be like, yeah, sure, revolution would be nice, but like this new Netflix special seems really cool. So I think, you know, that's, <laughs> I don't know if that's a hopeful scenario, but I actually think that that dynamic is important to keep in mind here. We're like Donald Trump, right? We might be cool with the idea, but then five minutes later, we're like, what's on TV? Let me get a cheeseburger. (laughs) I I oscillate on this question all the time. I I think I agree with Crystal, which is that we are too, um, I'm trying to find a polite way to say this. We've lost our edge. Um, I said fat and lost, soft, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> Listen, I was fat. I was gonna go for the word I want to use is too much. So we're too. Uh, right. We've we've gotten a lot shaved off of us in terms of our ability to actually do anything radical. I've actually been reading a lot about the 1917 revolution in Russia recently, and like these were hard people, and these were hard men wow. um, and leaders, and like. And same in Germany, the German Revolution of 1918. Like, if you go and you read about the actual times when all this happened, French Revolution of seven, in the 1790s, like, they had an edge to their lives that we just simply don't have here. And I think, and this gets to why my scenario for worst violence, it's when things get really bad, it's not when the peasants riot, it's when the bourgeoisie right. and the aristocrats begin to support violent action. That's why I think that the scenario for the most violence is if Trump does win from these like upper middle class people mm. who truly believe like Trump is Hitler and would resort to, you know, a, a similar action. At the same time, I mean, look, these are also the people who just want to go back to brunch and go back to soul yeah. cycle. Like that's their mo- overarching like motivation in life. So, who knows? Maybe they've been neutered by late stage capitalism in order to make sure that they're not going to do that. But the left is also so outarmed. So, I mean, 
I don't really see that they that there's that much of a viable. Plan. Well, you don't need guns to do anything, right? Like you don't just have to have a gun in order right. to cause like violence and damage. Yeah, yeah you don't need many guns also to make, to make yeah, that's trouble also, either. That's right. the other the other thing. And, and then you know, there are, there are a few groups that are armed. It's just the problem is they would have to take that step, and we just don't. There's no evidence that they would do that. It's just yeah. right. But there never is until there is. So that's that's the thing. All right. So so question about. I mean, obviously one of the big stories in the news in the last couple of weeks is this New York Post story about Hunter Biden, and then there's the actions that were taken by Twitter and Facebook. Um, what are your takes on on that? And is that something? Because the, the what I hear mostly from people is, well, this is this is just because it's just before the election. It's nothing to worry about. Um, it's not going to become part of our lives going forward, uh, or it's necessary because this is actually a phony story. Like, what, what do you believe about this, this situation? I mean, obviously, look, first of all, we should be clear, like the Biden campaign hasn't actually denied that any of these yeah, right. emails were real. So um, I think that's important context. I don't think that any of this really revealed that much about Hunter and the Bidens that we didn't already know. It's been clear that um, both... Hunter Biden and Joe's brother, Jim, in particular, have been trading on his name to earn money. So standard issue, Washington corruption. Hunter seems to have really taken it to the next level. Um, and frankly, you know, from approaching this from rising. So this story broke in the morning before our show. We were looking at it. We're like, oh, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. sure, we'll get to it probably tomorrow. We'll say something about it. But it wasn't that big of a bombshell story. Yeah. And then ironically, of course, when Twitter in particular censors it, where you can't even send the link, you can't send it by DM, people's accounts are getting shut down, all this insanity. Um, that's when the story blows up and becomes gets much, much, much more attention, classic Streisand effect than it ever did before. I do want to say two things that I do think are significant here. First of all, the pictures that they chose to publish of Hunter with like a crack pipe and, you know, other salacious photos, like... That's outrageous. It's disgusting. It has nothing to do with it zero news value. And frankly, if Twitter had popped them just for that thing, I could have maybe justified it. But of course, they went into this whole it was hacked sources mm-hmm. bullshit thing. Um, the other thing I will say is the media on this is I mean, they're ridiculous to pretend this isn't a story. It's not your job to judge whether like this is going to be electorally impactful. It's your job just to say, OK, is this true or false? Here's what you need to know, period, end of story. And if you're going to cover corruption from Trump, you may think this is lesser corruption. I think this is lesser corruption, but it's still a relevant story. Do I think it has political impact in terms of the election? No, I think it's more of an electoral question, like a governance question at this point than it is an election issue. But gosh, that still matters. This man's going to be president of the United States. It's worth knowing what he's done in the past and how people have, have traded on his name. The one last thing I'll say about this is like, you know, everybody's just fucking hypocrites all around. Like I see Tucker out there interviewing his business partner. Like he hasn't cared about corruption from Trump. All these right wingers that like want to make a big deal of it. That's fine if you've said anything about Trump's corruption, of which there are many manifest examples. So um, so that's kind of how I see this is it's just like revealed everyone's disgusting behavior and hypocrisy all the way around. Yeah, I know. I think I think you if you're you have to cover it. And I think if you do cover, you should cover it the way that we've done. What did we do today? We covered the new Tony Bobulinski in, uh, interview and mashed it up with the Washington Post report about the government reimbursing Trump 
for millions of dollars for a state dinner, which is outrageous and is out, outright corruption, right? A direct wealth transfer from the government to the chief executive's personal accounts. That is how I think it should be covered. But And this is what I keep saying is, look, David Farenthold won a Pulitzer Prize, I think rightfully, for writing about the Trump Foundation and the Trump Organization and their intertwinement with government. I think that is one of the most legit, not only one of the most a, incredibly legitimate story, which bears investigation, but then all that curiosity just goes out the window whenever it's Joe Biden's son. And that's the hypocritical part. And Crystal's right. There are a lot of people who are full of shit whenever they talk about this. And that's why I think that a lot of the electorate is going to look past it. Because, And this is what I keep saying to the Democrats, too. I'm like, look, it's perfectly reasonable to say, I believe the emails, and I don't think it's as bad as Trump's corruption. And I'm like pro-choice, and I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. Fine. Yeah. I mean, that's fine. Just be Seriously. honest about it. Yeah. Just be honest about it. I mean, that's how a lot of people... You think anybody? Do you think a lot of people really like Trump? Like half the people who voted for him right. personally disliked and in many cases despised the man, but voted for him because he was going to do something that would align with their values or they thought would materially benefit their life. People are people are grownups and they should be treated that way. And this whole like censorship and just ignoring it, it's ridiculous. And Matt, I've been following your lead really the entire time on the story. You know, one other, one other thing, because I think this broadens out to a bigger conversation is like, there's this, this obsession in um, liberal media, Democratic aligned media and in Democratic Party circles and Republican circles as well. But I just I think a lot about, you know, my side um, with not giving the other side a talking point. So what that means, that's like a fancy way of justifying lying, right? And then that or like just ignoring things and pretending they don't exist. And so, yeah, in this very short term, you may gain maybe, although I think in this case, there was massive backlash and caused more attention, but you may gain politically in the short term by just being like, nothing to see here. And let me spin and let me lie and let me pretend. But over the long term, no one's going to trust you. Everyone sees, even your own people see you, you're full of shit. Like the the end of every single story on MSNBC, the moral cannot possibly be Republicans are bad or Trump is bad as the moral of every single story. And over on Fox News, like the moral of every single story can't possibly be Democrats and liberals are destroying the country. Even the most partisan person at some point goes like, there must be something else going on other than Trump is bad or Democrats are bad. And so I think that's why, you know, I think that's why you guys have been successful. I think that's why people have responded to us. Not so much you're asking about our like ideological lineup and if that's why people, I think it's more people have responded to us because we've been willing to be honest even when it's inconvenient for our political ideology or supposed team. Yeah. Really quickly, um, what do you think the Dems could have done about the Supreme Court and what can be done about, you know, I think you, Bernie Sanders on the show the other day, David Sirota, um, are warning about how there could be, you know, the next Trump, if the Dems drop the ball, next Trump will be a less buffoonish Trump. What can be done, if anything, to move the Dems to the left um, or, or make them actual populists? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> or is it just a lost cause? I mean, okay. So I do have I do have an answer on this. So um, I think the pe- a lot of the people who have been like, we've got to because this drives me crazy. Like you got to hold your fire on Joe Biden until November third, yeah, and then it's right. open and then season, and then you're right. allowed to say what you want. And first of all, you know that that's not going to be the case. 
he gets elected, then there's going to be a celebration. Oh my God, Trump's out, all of that. Then it'll be, it'll shift immediately from, you can't say that because you're giving Trump a talking point to, you can't say that because you're giving the Republicans a talking point. Like you will never be allowed to like be accepted as, um, criticizing or as criticizing the Democratic Party. I think that's the landscape that we face. And also, look, Biden, if he wins, he won the primary by telling the left to go fuck themselves. And he's about to win the general, likely by also telling the left to go fuck themselves. So if you think that he's going to be pressured by progressives like organizing anyone, getting out and telling him what we think, I just think that that's foolish because ultimately not only does it fall on deaf ears, but he actually likes that dynamic because then he gets a signal to like the, you know, never Trump Republican, moderate, whatever that he covets the most, that he's so moderate because look, I'm telling these right. people on the left that they're crazy and I'm not like them. So it's actually beneficial for him. The one thing that I think could have, there was a there was a possibility to have some power in the election if votes were credibly withheld. That possibility has obviously passed and most people are voting for Joe Biden. I myself voted for Joe Biden. Um, next time around, the, the next opportunity for political power is really 2024. And that will come very quickly. And if there can be, it doesn't, they don't even have to believe that there's a credible threat that they could be defeated, either Biden or Kamala, whoever is running in that primary. But even the credible threat of like, this is going to be messy and it's going to be ugly. They freak out about that stuff. So I think that's the next credible leverage point. Do I have confidence that, you know, people in Washington, the squad or anybody else are really going to step up? and um, push for that. I'm I'm sort of doubtful, but I think that's the most credible point of leverage ultimately. Um, and your other question was what, Katie? There's oh, if, what could have been done about the about Amy? Supreme uh, Court. I yeah. mean, look, I think there were a lot more delay tactics that they could have used. They just decided to essentially let it go through because they think it's better for their electoral prospects and they like fundraising off of it. And they like to go out and tweet like, see Jill Stein voters, you gave us this, blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> And, right. and I, Joe Biden, you know, he's got his commission on what to do about the courts. He's such an institutionalist. I don't think he's going to do anything. No. He's already said that he's completely opposed to changing even term limits, which would be the easiest change to right. make. So depressing landscape again. Sorry. Uh, last question for me. Uh, I mean, I guess, you're, Crystal, what you just said kind of answers this question. But are, are we looking at a transformation of the Democratic Party generally? Um you know, they, Rolling Stone described uh, in their endorsement of Biden, uh, his support as being a coalition of the decent. And they, they mentioned Bernie Sanders on the one side, but then they also mentioned Bill Crystal on the other side. <laughs> Roger, uh, do you guys even think he's decent? Uh, oh. uh, well, no. Oh, Joe Biden? With that, no, that no, no. War criminals? Oh, do I think yeah. war criminals? Are, but yeah, mean, no. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess what I'm wondering is Biden won as you say, by telling the Sanders people to go fuck themselves. And, and it was pretty convincing. Uh, and he's got this massive amount of uh, support with the kind of neoconservatives who were homeless after Trump. I mean, why not, if you're the Democrats, just reorient yourselves as kind of a permanent elite party that doesn't have to even pay lip service to uh, you know, the, the traditional progressivism, labor issues, things like that. Why, why not reorient themselves as a, as a security oriented, uh, you know, militaristic, 
you know, new, new form of, of, uh, of, of Democratic Party and that maybe it was more popular back in the 60s and, uh, you know, in the in Kennedy era. Uh, you know what I'm saying? I guess. It's, yeah. Stop uh, making me salivate well, over. I think yeah. I think, Matt, that that reorientation has already occurred. I guess is my view. And, sure. you know, it's becoming more clear and that sort of consolidation is already happening. But look, this has been the Democratic Party's path and approach since Bill Clinton. Their major political innovation, their major major innovation in, in general was basically winning elections or sometimes occasionally winning elections by telling the left to suck it up, signaling to moderate white suburbanites and, you know, thirstily questing after them for decades now at this point. Like, this has been the program. They've certainly been complicit in the militarism. They've been complicit in the, like, market-based obsession and the financial deregulation and bailing out the banks and not helping homeowners, all the things that you've covered. So I don't see that. I see this as a continued trajectory rather than um, a real shift for them in the direction that they've been going, I guess, ultimately. Excellent. Um, yeah, Matt, I, I hope that happens. Um, and I hope that the right can fill in those gaps to capture much of what you're talking about. But I'm not optimistic about it. I mean, I'd like to see it happen. I'm going to keep pushing for it to happen. But I am not optimistic about it in any way, particularly in the near term. And so maybe, you know, the scenario Crystal laid out in which both are captured by um, selective elites is the future that we're doomed to for the near term. Say we start Thanks. organizing for a third party, honestly, at least for the well. Last. One one thing I will say is I don't them. think I don't know what it looks like, but that situation that we have just grimly described is not a sustainable one. Right. Now, does that's it end right. in an that's ugly right. way or a productive way, a good way, a way that's good for working class people or not? I don't. Does it end with a police state where elites just like enforce their? Could go in any variety of directions, but one thing I can tell you for sure is it is not a sustainable direction. And so other opportunities and paths will certainly arise. Excellent. All right, Crystal Sager, thank you so much thank for coming on. Thank you guys so much. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Right, Appreciate you guys. Thank All you. Right. All right, I learned something today. I learned a lot. What did you learn? Um, you know, I, I learned that they're doing great. You know what I mean? I've, I've, I think that show uh, is a proof of concept, and I just wish... I wish more media companies would see it and and try to do the same thing. Why don't we do that? Why don't we like agree culturally and we kind of do act? No, I don't know. We're like, if they're like here, people can't see. I have my hands in a, I don't even know how, to, whatever. If they're right hand out, left hand out. We're like, this is like turning into a workout. I don't even know how to describe it. We are not as opposite at all as they are. But we have yeah. some points of agreement, some points of disagreement. I mean, yeah. so do they, but ours are less consistent. And uh, yeah. And obvious. Yeah. I don't think anybody would look at uh, you and me and say, we what represent the two halves of America. Right, exactly. You know what yeah. I mean? So, yeah. um, Maybe, but we're going to have to start doing that. Like, what on at least there has to be one issue where we're predictably, like, we need, we need a hook for this show to really grow and explode. So, what is it going to be? It's not going to be necrophilia because I've converted you. Um, what could it be? Probably the woke stuff. I mean, you know. Yeah. Although I agree. I, yeah. Although we both enjoy a good woke wokeification of stuff. We'll figure we'll it out. It. But I want it to be something really random. Like uh, public grazing lands use? Yeah. Should I say there should be less of it? Of 
course. And you and you're more for it. Of course, yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, all right. Good. Yes. All right. uh, although I think actually your position helps the big corporate farmers more. <laughs> well, we're going to have to get into well, that. Let's investigate course, it. Yeah, of course yeah. you would say that. So predictable, man. Yeah. You always misrepresent me on this issue. Always. That's right. Always. Yeah. I guess until next week. Uh, good luck, everybody. Yeah. Vote. Safely. If, if you care. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, vote or stay home and watch useful idiots and buy some mugs. That's right. Yeah. Or just... You know, and write leave really bad reviews for David for the X Files. David X yeah, podcast. That's a good idea. Drink a twelve pack. Stay home all day. Don't if you if you have if you're one of these people who's like oh I'm gonna get in shape starting tomorrow. Don't make it Tuesday. Make it more like Wednesday or Thursday. Yeah, like, just put it off. Right. Binge um, watch or binge listen to binge, us. Binge binge something. Subs subscribe to us on YouTube. That means you press right. subscribe and then you press the bell. By the way, I've been looking into it. So you hit subscribe, then you press the bell. Um, rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcast. Yep. Spread the word. And we'll see you next week. Yeah. <laughs>Michael Toscano, hoping you'll join me on the First Light Podcast. We get to the heart of the event shaping our world as our correspondents check in and we talk with newsmakers and people who can take us behind the headlines. The First Light Podcast, wherever you get podcasts.